Jesus, today we are grateful to be people who are on some level, in some way, aware of the depth of your love for us. Now we also admit that that's, that's limited and, and we're all in varying degrees of brokenness, varying degrees of finding hope, various degrees of understanding what that love really means. And nonetheless, God, here today, as a gathered community of people, our gratitude is, is simply this, that you loved us so well that you would come into our world, put on flesh and bones, walk among us, love us well, and give everything on our behalf. God, we know that's not exclusive. It's not just this group. It's not just Christians. You've loved all people of all time. And so, God, we, uh, we turn our attention to you as you guide, as you lead, as you change our thoughts, our minds, our beliefs, our feelings, and eventually our actions. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, and let me welcome you again to Church of the City. My name is Russell. I'm the teaching pastor here. And as I think I say far too often, um, the word that comes to mind as I, as I sit here, as my eyes adjust to the, the really bright light in front of me, and I try to make out your faces, the only word that strikes me um, in this moment is gratitude. Uh, I'm so grateful to be with you. Uh, there's, there's something about being a community of people um, that is, is by necessity, it requires more than one person. Um, and, and to have the time and the space, to have the kind of connections, the relationships, the depth, even, even as you come maybe for the very first time, to have things that exist like this, where a group of people who are quite different from one another, who think differently, who have different storylines, can occupy the same airspace for a moment of life, and turn our attention and our energy and our focus towards Jesus of Nazareth, that's quite remarkable. And I'm grateful for you, grateful to be here with you. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to, to guide this part of our, our time together around the scriptures. Now, I'm going to do something that um, we do from time to time, and, and big deep breath here. Um, there is no obligation or arm twisting for you to participate um, in the way that I'm going to express or ask you. I'm not saying anything right now. Um, we're going to pass a microphone around in a few minutes. Um, and I know that's terrifying uh, for some of you. So let me just give you an out right now. There is no requirement or obligation for you to speak into any microphones today. But here's what we're doing. Last week, we, we began um, a mini-series that's going to take us about 12 years to get through um, in, in the book of Psalms. And I joke about that, but the reality is we're going to do 10 weeks in the book of Psalms right now. Uh, we're on week two right now, and then we're going to take a big break, um, do something else in the scriptures, and come back to this and revisit this from time to time over the next 10 or 12 years. So I expect all of you to be here through the duration of the series. Um, but one of the things that the scriptures are is, is they're unique, right? They're different from one another. And one of the ways that they're unique is they're not all the same kind of literature. And the Psalms predominantly, if you are aware, or if you've read them before, um, they're poetry, which, like I expressed last week, like just saying that makes a little bit of vomit come up in the back of my throat because I don't like poetry. I never have. Like, it's never been a genre of things like figure up, like, I'm going to go pick up a book and it's going to be poetry because that's what I want to read right now. Never in my life has that ever happened. Okay, one time, Shel Silverstein, when I was a kid, because it was ridiculous. Besides him, nothing, okay? But here's the thing. We have this amazing body of work in the Psalms that they, they are this entrance into the heart and the mind and the soul 
of humans much like us who lived roughly 3,000 years before us. And we have this elitism about, oh, we're so evolved and we're so technologically advanced and our culture and our society is so much better than previous ones. And that's just rubbish. That's just not true. The reality is humans are humans are humans. We've been humans for a long time. We have cultural differences, absolutely. Different moments in time, yes. But dealing with the very same kinds of things today as humans were 3,000 years ago. So what the Psalms are, are this window into the mind and the heart and the soul of the ancients who are trying to understand the very same God that we're trying to understand. And so last week we began where you start these things in Psalm 1, uh, because we begin things with number one. Um, and, And as these were put together, just so you understand, the Psalms are not written by one person. There's some predominance. Some, some of the writers are more dominant than others. Some like the very first Psalm, there's not attributed to anyone. So we kind of left in the dark about who wrote it. But Psalm 1 is this beginning, orienting, kind of overarching picture of what the Psalms are supposed to be, as is the one we're going to look at today, Psalm 2. So I had this like idea. The first Psalm, I'm going to put the first half on the screen right now behind me, so you can kind of like refresh your memory if you were um, here last week, and if you weren't, then you can catch up with us a little bit. This first Psalm is predominantly focused on one central idea, the idea that we have to somehow approach the wisdom of God over and against our own wisdom. That there's two options on what we're going to do with our life. Um, are we going to approach God and what he wants out of this world? Or are we going to approach what we want out of this world? And there's this like big compare and contrast. Like You can grind to a halt following your own wisdom. Literally, you start walking and then you sit and then you fall down. Like There's this like momentum of like you grind to a halt under the power of your own wisdom. Or you're planted and you thrive in the wisdom of God like a tree planted by, by deep living streams of water. So here's what I want to do. This is a question, we, we have a, a group of people, um, we call our preaching team or teaching team, that we get together weekly to try to um, un- unlock the scriptures, try to just, like, get at them. And one of the very first things we do, one of the very first questions I ask that team is, what strikes you? What strikes you? Now, this passage, Psalm 1, gives us this like emphasis on internalizing the voice of God, this meditate meditate on the law of the Lord. is this concept rich in this passage. So there's this, this sense of, like, over the last week's time, um, that this passage, whether you've been deeply aware of it or not, um, is intended to do work on you, as is all scripture. So what I want to do is I just want to take, we're going to like make this super brief, four or five minutes, tops, and if no one talks, it'll be even faster. Um, so please talk. It would be super fun if you do. Um, but my only question is this, fundamentally, what strikes you? And the reason we're going to, open this up to conversation and passing a microphone is because we have a deep belief system here at Church of the City that this is not a church about a single individual other than Jesus of Nazareth. And that means that we all are the followers of Jesus. We all have access to try to understand who he is. And it's not one voice that's dominant over the rest that's important. It's the fact that the Spirit of God is working in and among you. And that work that's coming out of you is super important for us to participate in and hear from. So here's the thing. This passage on the screen behind me, and if you have anything that's just like bubbling out, maybe it's even a question, maybe it's like something you're confused by, maybe it's something that you just like don't agree with, that's fine. But just, is anything out of this first half of this first psalm strike you? Not everybody at once. If you, if you want to talk, raise your hand nice and high. Sarah's going to come around with a microphone. Great, right up here. Elizabeth, God bless everybody. I think um, two things come to mind. 
the first obviously the fruit and being fruitful for God and the second thing is that God created the world and nature and so being able to recharge and renew yourself and be close to God and not sin by being in nature by the trees and the stream are two things that come to mind mm. so um yeah one of the beautiful things about poetry is and we talked about this last week is the ability for us and the, the need for us to use our very best interpretive skills um and that's left honestly like to us it's it's poetry it's it's imagery and metaphor and there's something that moves right into the literal with it um and the, this image of a tree planted by water as elizabeth is spot on i mean it is pulled right out of the reality of the world around us there's something about the created world that's beautiful and redemptive what else something else that strikes you i'm molly um the where it says which yields its fruit in season i think that's really powerful especially for me at this time in my life because um we want to yield fruit all year long and we want to look productive and we want to be showing off that we're bearing fruit. I don't know. Um, but it very specifically says in season, meaning in its due time. Um, and there's multiple seasons. So those seasons like winter that, you know, were just completely bare and broken those are a season two, and they're there for a reason. But yielding fruit in its season um, is a specific time that's and good. not just year-round. Yeah, so that's what struck good. me. Thank you. Thank you. Someone else? Anybody else? I like how in the beginning it says blessed is the one and there's no qualifier in front of that. So it's not speaking to, you know, a Christian or a Jew or someone who is like familiar with God, but it's anyone. And I love that it's open. Um, and I feel like it's easy for me to want to put qualifiers on that and like make that specific. And it's not, it's for everyone. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, over here. Um, I like the uh, sentence, but those who delight in the law of the Lord, that is just a sentence that one can contemplate on for a long time. It's so anti our culture, and yet if, if that gets a hold of our heart and we really understand what it is that, that delighting in the Lord means, it, that is a, a game changer yeah. for a free chart. So, yeah, like that. agreed, agreed. Yeah, one more right there. Um, I'm Becca. I think it's great that this is like the first three verses of the entire book. Mm. And it says, who meditates on his law day and night. Um, I think that being the baseline of like meditating on the book and meditating on the words, even if you don't understand them, Mm. just that you're processing through it and thinking about it and trying to figure it out, I guess, is a really great way to go into the chapter and into the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible, just looking yeah. for understanding, even if you don't find it right away. Yes. Yes, Becca, thank you. Thanks for saying that. You said it way better than I could have. And I think that's essential. Like, that is a central piece of, of, of who we are as humans and a central identifying factor of who we are at Church of the City, that we are a community of people that have the ability to be honest enough to say, don't have it all figured out right now. 
but I'm trying. And that's, that's the qualifier. It's like a lot of people want to say, I just don't have God figured out. I don't have scripture figured out. I don't know what I'm doing. And they're done. But we can name that and say, we're human. We're still trying to figure these things out, but we're trying. We're aiming at God. We're aiming at understanding what's going on. We're aiming at understanding ourselves and the people around us in this world in light of what God's up to. And so we will apply ourselves. We will meditate on it. We will delight in this voice of God to try to find, find him as best we can. Thank you. Thank you for humoring me. I know that some of you are like on pins and needles and you're like, man, is it going to go badly? I'm going to get embarrassed. Even if I'm not the one talking, someone else is going to embarrass me. So thank you for that small amount of pain for something good coming out of it. We're going to do this from time to time as we go through the Psalms because they are so reflective. That's, the, that's our intention. And like I said last week, one of the challenges here, if you don't know me, um, I really thrive in like the educational environment. Hence the reason I sit on a stool and I don't stand on a platform while I'm talking in a low voice and I don't yell when I'm teaching and preaching. Like I love education. But the problem is um, these function far differently in other genres of scripture. And we're talking about like the law, for instance, literally the 613 laws in the Old Testament. Man, we can, we can dig into those and I can teach you on those. This is far different. This is like this reflective kind of cooperative kind of wrestling with what's going on here. And it's, it's really important that you take this first Psalm to heart, much like what Becca just said, um, that we, we, we apply ourselves, that we let it get inside of our soul and get a grip on us. And that may not happen just simply from me educating you. So we're going to do our best to experience these together. Now, um, to get into this next Psalm, Psalm 2, um, I need to tell you another mountain biking story. Um, and, and this one, I, I'm going to reverse. Last week, I, kind of, I felt, walked away feeling kind of bad. Like, man, I really like, threw my friend under the bus, um, like, sharing the story about him falling off the back of the ride and him having to lay down in the middle of the, the, uh, the trail and him throwing up. Um, that, that was really pretty poor form of me, and I'm doing it again right now, still <laughs> throwing him under the bus. Um, but it's, it's, it goes both ways, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever, has anyone ever like genuinely like gotten on a mountain bike and gone uphill before? Anyone ever experienced that before? Have you ever gotten on a bicycle and gone uphill, even on pavement before? You know what that feels like? You know that, you know that, yeah, so hard. Yeah, that's exactly my sentiment as well. Um, even as someone who like, I, I enjoy the uphill more than the downhill. Um, and, and it, it's a weird funky thing that goes on in my brain that I'd really dig it. Um, but when, when you get on a bike, um, typically the first stretch is the hardest and then your body like picks up and you can kind of like keep going and a lot of a lot of physical mo- like motions are that way like running is that way swimming is that way if you can get past that first little barrier then you have a lot more longevity than you realize so you mentally have to trick yourself into this kind of thing um so i i got um connected with these guys as um as that were better riders than me and as time goes on i'm i'm kind of like riding up to their skill level and one day um about once a year, um, when I was living in Boise, Idaho, Boise, if you aren't familiar with it, is this town in a valley, like hunkered up right next to the, the hills that go up into the Rocky Mountains, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And it's like 12 miles deep of foothills and about uh, 5,000 feet in elevation gain. So, and it's up and down, up and down, all twisted. And there's like 125 miles of trail right out of town right there. Okay? So my wife and I, we bought a house like three blocks from trailhead so that we could you know, go play on the, on the hills and all that. Um, but I started riding with these guys, and once a year, one of my goals was to get from um, valley floor all the way up to the ridge up on the top. So distance-wise, you're over 12 miles because you're up and down and around. An elevation gain, you're going about 5,000 feet. And about once a year, I would do it, um, and I would do it at my own pace and slow down, whatever. I found this group of riders that were much better than me, and they would do it on a weekly basis. And so when they invited me for the first time, I was like, this will be my once a year, and we'll be good. 
And, uh, and what I didn't realize is they, they like to ride to the ridge. And unlike me who turns around and comes home, then they ride all over the ridge and all the trails up there. And then they turn around and come home. So I'm riding with them, riding with them. I don't keep up with them. They're way better, stronger riders than I am. They get to the top. About a half hour later, I show up at the top. They've rested. They've eaten their lunch. And they're ready to go. And this is how that works. If you drop off the back, like you're constantly off the back of a ride like this because everyone's resting while you're so working. So I show up and they're all like, let's go. So we go. So I haven't had a break. And we just, we just ride this trail system at the top, up in the trees. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. I mean, it, and it's, this is like big hit kind of stuff, which means they put wall rides and teeter-totters and narrow rides, all this crazy stuff that I watch other people do because what goes like, a lot, I think this goes alongside of being a billy goat as, of a rider who likes uphill. I'm also a grandpa of a rider. I'm terrified of getting hurt mountain biking. So I'm watching these guys do all these crazy things, but I'm getting, you know, really worn out. And we, we get to a spot where um, we drop into a pretty deep um, cut, um, a few hundred feet down, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to climb out. I'm going to have to walk my bike back out so I can get some air and then, like, drop down back, back to home. And, uh, and sure enough, like, I get halfway up out of this little cut, and I'm, like, pull over, and they go past me, and I, I pick up, you know, I just walk my bike up to the top. Now, I get to the top, I'm pretty confident they're all going to be gone, they're all going to keep riding these trails, and there's one guy hanging out at the top. Uh, he happened to be the guy who got me involved in this group, and he was a guy who was my roommate at the time. He's the guy who got me into mountain biking. Um, and he, he, he could see that I was, I was struggling, right? We get to the top, and uh, or I get to the top, and he's waiting for me. And I know what, I, I, I kind of have a sense that what they want to do is they, we kind of drop some elevation. They want to go back to the very, very top of the ski resort, um, and they want to go play around up there and then buzz back down to town before dark. And I'm, I'm just like, I got to go. Like, I'm, I'm out of gas. I can't do this. And he's like, well, why don't you just come ride the road with me? We'll only take trails. We'll just take, take the pavement to the bottom of the ski resort, um, and we'll, we'll either watch them play or hang out or whatever. I'm like, Gary, I'll, I'll do that. But you understand this, like if you've ever been on a bicycle before, as opposed to driving in a car, you realize that elevation gain is a real thing, right? Like you get on a bicycle or a skateboard or anything with wheels or you're under your own power, and all of a sudden, the little slope between wherever and wherever that you always drive and it's cooked, it's just fine, you just push your right foot down a little bit harder, is very different when you're using your own energy to, to go that distance. And so in my mind, the road from where we were to the bottom of the ski resort was flat. It was not flat. There was no flatness to it whatsoever. It was, it was a climb. And we had about a two-mile ride on pavement to get to the bottom of the ski resort. And so I'm, I'm, I'm on the road, and it's like there's no traffic up here. It's just this little road that goes up to a ski resort. There's no, no one there. It's a summer night, you know, no cars. And so we're just kind of out on the pavement. And my buddy who's out in front of me, he, like, just keeps pulling away from me. I'm like, I just can't keep up. So finally I'm, I'm like, at a spot where like, I got to I gotta go turn around. And right as I'm thinking, I can't go any further, my buddy slows down. He comes right next to me. And he's a competitive rider. He rides road and mountain. And this might sound like a little much um, to some of you, but this is how things are in the athletic world. Um, he puts his hand right on my bottom, right behind me on my seat. And he starts cranking on his pedals. And I'm cranking on my pedals as hard as I can. And I, I mean, he and I, like, we're, we're like manly guys, right, in some sense. And I almost started crying because I was blown away at what was happening in the moment. I don't know if you understand that I'm trying to like bore you to tears with how much energy I'd given away because the emotional response of my friend putting his hand on my seat 
and giving all of his energy so that I would make it to the bottom of the ski resort was unprecedented. But he and I, we didn't, we didn't at that point, we do now, we're very close still. Uh, we had just, we're starting a relationship where, where we were willing to share honestly, openly, intimately. And we got to the bottom of the ski resort and he is blown up because he's been pushing me for about two miles up this non-flat pavement. And we get there and I realize something. That the work he was doing meant he wasn't going to get to go ride up and down on the hills with the rest of the guys who were riding there. So we sat at the bottom, two guys completely out of gas, and we had our very first conversation that meant something at the beginning of a relationship that went the distance that he and I are still very close. Now I share that with you for this reason. Of all the moments of my, of my, of my life, and there's a lot of these that kind of fit in this category, this one stands out. To express one little idea about who I am as a person, and I think this is transferable to other people. I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as strong as I think I am. So we get these belief systems in our minds about what we're good at, what we're capable of, what our bodies can do, what our intellect can do, what we can achieve in life. And the narrative we tell ourselves is usually a little bit bigger than reality. Sometimes it's a lot bigger than reality. And as we come face to face with what's actually happening in the world around us, and we come to our limits, we have to recognize some things about ourselves, some things that are just amazingly difficult to come to terms with. And one of those is this. You are not as strong as you think you are. And this goes into a lot of areas of, of life. I mean, this is in what you're good at in your work and vocation world. This is what your, your capacity to think, your capacity to take care of other people. This is in your relationship with your significant other. This is inside of your family group. This is everything in your world. You're not as strong as you think you are. But then you like, start talking about our faith story and how that is woven into all these parts of our life. And it's, it's really challenging to come to terms with something like, as a follower of Jesus or as someone who's dabbling in following Jesus, someone who's entertaining spirituality or faith or is full-blown committed to the ways of Jesus, you aren't as strong as you think you are. As a person who is following Jesus, I'm talking to deals of you have committed and you're on that journey and you're with him, you're trying to put on his ways and his thinking and you're trying to do life the way he would have you do life. A lot of us, we get in trouble when things start going well and then we get kind of like pumped up about it and proud about it we start thinking things like, I'm doing really well. And we forget it's not you that's doing really well. It's the work of God in you that's doing really well. And we forget the fact that we still have a long ways to go concerning our own capacity, our own strength, our own ability, and our brokenness. Now, I bring that up because this is what is, is at stake in this psalm. Before we even get to the psalm, I, I want to back up a little bit and I want to read just three verses to you concerning the idea of this psalm. Now, I know that sounds weird, but you'll get it when we get into the psalm. Now, these psalms are poetry, right? So it's not telling us a story necessarily, but they, they do matter in real life. People use these psalms in real life. The particular psalm we're looking at today was used this way. In Israel, there were kings. You know that, right? So the people of God, God's, um, God's family out of Abraham, covenant people are named Israel, they had rejected God as their king, and they asked to have a physical, in-flesh king. And so God does that, right? He gives them Saul. Saul doesn't go so well. And so um, through the prophets, through Samuel, 
God says, I'm, I'm going to, to anoint another king. You know his name. You've heard it before. It's David. This man who's attested to being a man after God's own heart, right? This guy who is looked at and, and said by God to be the one who's going to be the leader of Israel and predominantly that everyone else is going to have to live up to, that every king after him is going to have a hard time living up to the, the stature and the prominence and the power of this guy named David. Before David is king, there's this moment where the prophet comes to him and, and speaks to him, tells him what he wants out of, out of David, what God wants out of David. I'm going to read these, just these few verses to you just to give you a sense of what, uh, of what is going on here. I'm going to, I'm going to pick it up. This is, this is back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse 11. And it says this, the Lord declares to you, or the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. He's talking directly to David. When your days are over and you rest and you rest with our ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now I just took this one, this one little snapshot. You should go back and read the whole section. There's a massive part where, where Samuel's reading this idea over, over this new king, David. But I bring this up to you for this reason, that there's a, this relationship beginning to emerge between the leader of Israel and God himself, where God is saying, I'm going to establish a king, a powerful individual whose kingdom will be eternal, whose ancestors, whose children's children's children will maintain power and control and prominence in Israel. That doesn't sound like much to you, but imagine being one of the sons of David one of the grandsons of David. It was a patriarchal system, still, still male-centric world. Imagine being in the lineage of David when it comes your turn to become king of God's people in Israel. It's a big deal, right? It's a big thing. The psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 2, is the psalm that would be read at the inauguration or the coronation of a king in Israel. With this in mind, that God himself has established that this person at this moment is the right person to be in control, who's privileged enough, powerful enough, godly enough to be in control of Israel. So this is what they would read, this particular psalm. Now, with that in mind, I want you to open your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. If you have it, if you don't, we'll provide it on the screen for you. Um, Just encourage you, bring a Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or in print, that's okay too. I mean, I know it's old school, but some of us still like paper. Um, they make recycled Bibles if that's a thing for you. Um, but if you really want to be savvy about it, you can use electrons. They're highly recyclable. That was a joke. They didn't go very well. <laughs> Psalm chapter 2 um, is where we are. And we're going to take this just moment by moment real quick um, and let it, let it do its work. So this is what would be read as a king is being installed in Israel. Listen to the tone. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now stop there for a second. This psalm is is broken into four sections. We call those stanzas. You remember that from like third grade poetry? We have these these groupings of, um, of literature. 
And those stanzas, as they develop, they're, they're there on purpose to try to get us like, to move the ideas. And this first one, if you remember, like this, imagine being you know, the person being anointed king over Israel. You're standing in the throne room um, of, of the palace or your you know, pre-palace. You're, you're near the temple or the, or the tabernacle, and you're being um, anointed and prayed over by the, the living prophet of Israel. And this is what they read. And the first thing that comes out of the person's mouth, the priest or the prophet who's anointing you as king, starts going on about the people who are opposed to you and to God. Why do the people rise up against God? Why do the people conspire against him is how it begins. What's being identified here is a fact that there are humans on earth opposed to the work of God on earth. And there are humans who are opposed directly to God himself. That this is what's being said, that there are people who don't want to follow the God of the Hebrews. The God that this group of people, Israel, had decided together collectively is our God that we're following, and there are people opposed. Now, that's not rocket science. It's not crazy. This is well-known territory. But hold on to that tone as you think about this inaugural address. Now pick up in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. So this is crazy, right? Like you're being anointed king and all of a sudden what's being spoken is about a different king, God himself, who's enthroned. And his reaction to the situation of being people being opposed to Israel and to God himself is that the king of the world, God himself, laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now stop there for a second, because this is developing. At first, all we got was there are people who are opposed to God and people opposed to the people of God. But God's reaction is really important here. The God himself laughs at the opposition that humans have to his work and his, his mind and his power and what he's up to. Now, I don't know if that strikes you one way or the other. Some of you are very, um, you find security in that concept. And some of you feel like, how could the God of the world laugh at anybody? How could, how could he impose his wrath on anyone? Now, this, this is an intended reaction. What's happening in the psalm is, is a display of the overarching ability and power of the God who's leading Israel. What the king is hearing at this point, what the people of Israel are hearing at this point, is the king that they follow, the real king, not the human king, the God who created them, the God they're following, is in complete and utter control of the world. It's this like display that he's, he's the one who's actually in control regardless of what humans think about him. But it gets, it gets a little bit more complicated because out of the psalm, what goes on here is all that power, that, that position of that God is being shifted onto the human earthly king. That God himself is installing someone in Zion. Now Zion is another name for Jerusalem. It has some like end of the world kind of concepts and connotations to it. But here, plainly, um, as if we read it plainly, it just means simply God is the one who's establishing this king to rule over Israel. And so there's this association of power between God himself, the God who, who looks at the world, who's opposed to him and laughs at them and scoffs at them, 
He associates that with the king and says, this king I've installed is my emissary on earth. Now imagine how it would feel. Like this, this, this is just how it is as we grow up in childhood. Um, when, I, when I was younger, um, I wasn't the most popular human being in the world. I've shared that with you before. Um, it's still fairly true today that I'm not the most popular person on earth. Um, I, I was in the category of what you might call a nerd or a geek. Um, and as such, in my academic career in early childhood, um, I found a lot of comfort among people who thought, thought like me, felt like me, and acted like me, right? But one of the things that I became aware of pretty fast, like many of you, is highly beneficial to have a few friends who are bigger and more intimidating than you are. Especially when you're on the receiving end quite often of other people's bullying or just their anger or frustration at you for what seems like no apparent reason as a geek or nerd among the culture of junior high and high school. So one of the guys uh, that was a friend of mine growing up was a guy named Brian Wade. Brian Wade um, was, was this guy, and my, my memory of him is completely wrong. I, I know it. Like, I don't understand how this still is the case because I've seen him since in real life. When we were in elementary school, um, I don't know what I weighed, but I was confident that Brian weighed 300 pounds. Now, I know it's not true. It's absolutely untrue. He doesn't weigh 300 pounds a day. But in my mind, in my childhood mind, as I met Brian um, and was around him, he became a security for me. When we got to junior high, now I was oblivious in junior high. My friends accused me of this who know me and knew me in junior high. But I was just oblivious to a lot of things going on around me. But one of the things I wasn't oblivious to was the need for protection. And Brian Wade became that for me. There was one day where we were playing tetherball, as you do in junior high. Um, and I, was, I, I pride myself. I was pretty good at tetherball. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. And that makes other people angry, right? So I was playing tetherball against this guy, and I beat him, right? And this guy was, was classically one of the jocks of our middle school. And he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to take the tetherball off of the tetherball pole and start swinging it around at me, chasing me across the commons area of our junior high. I knew as soon as I took off running exactly where I was going. I was not going to a teacher. I was not going to go find the aide who was out on the, on the playground trying to keep us safe. I ran towards Brian. I knew that Brian Wade would do anything in his power to take care of me and protect me. And I knew as soon as I was within relative proximity of Brian, I had all the power that Brian had as well. And I could do or say anything I wanted at that point. Now, I wasn't the kind of kid who like taunt people back. I just wanted to like go to class the next period without my face bashed in. And so running to Brian was the space where like all of a sudden I knew I was, I was safe. That's exactly what's going on in this psalm. The, the, the psalmist is saying that God is the one in complete and utter control. In fact, it's so, he's in so much control, it's kind of laughable when people oppose him. And the king that's been installed is now associated with the power and the predominance of God himself. Pick it up in verse 7. So I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He has said to me, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Now that language is stolen right out of 2 Samuel. I thought about reading that with you. It's a very complicated section. It's not that uh, relevant other than for you to know that that is the relationship that God and Saul with David. You become my son. I become your father. You are my king on earth. I will be your dad. And that's being passed on here to whoever is being inaugurated as the next living king. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, you will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This picture is a picture of you now have all the power, all the protection of, of God himself. Continue on in verse 10. 
therefore you kings. Now again, this now starts addressing people outside of Israel. Therefore you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can kind of see how this would work for inaugural event, can't you? You can kind of see like this would be like the thing that would make the chest of the king get so big as he puffs himself up to say, I am now the living embodiment of God on earth. I am the privileged one. I am the one with all the power and all the control that God himself has as he opposes people who are opposed to him. That would feel really good, I have to admit. That would feel like we, we've won the day. This is the kind of thing you want to read to a group of people who are struggling to find their place in the geopolitical place that Israel's in. who are trying to understand what's, what's our relationship with the enemies across the river from us who are trying to capture our women and our children. But this is our position against the people who have been dogging us for a thousand years as they chase us through the wilderness and are still our mortal enemies to this day. This is the kind of thing you read to make people feel good about their position. Now, let's just say, just for argument's sake, this happened on a Monday, this inauguration event. On Tuesday, everybody goes back to their normal daily grind. They go back to their day job. They go back doing what they're doing. And they come face to face with something that's true for a lot of us and a lot of experiences. Some people call it letdown. Others call it reality. A cold dose of reality begins to find its way into the minds and the heart and the souls of the people who are sitting there listening to this particular psalm read over their king. As they realize fundamentally it hasn't changed anything about themselves personally or about their enemies. Those enemies are still out there. And personally, they understand they're not the king. And this wasn't read about them. I think even for the king, Tuesday is a pretty rough day, potentially. As he comes face to face with some reality, that what was said about him yesterday on Monday isn't quite as true as other people's might believe. You see, what's going on in the psalm is an ideal storyline, an ideal picture of some sort. That quite honestly, not a single king of Israel lived up to. If you know anything about the storyline of the kings of Israel, you know they were all rubbish, even the best ones. Even David, even Hezekiah. These ones that stand out as these like heroes of the kings were so crippled by their own humanity. They were still broken people Humans still wrestling with their own sin story, their own issues, their own inabilities, their own wants, perhaps, to live up to something like this. But fully, completely, were incapable of doing it. You see, in its particular time and place, the psalm was oriented towards the inaugural event. But all through the New Testament, this passage is, is quoted. Psalms 2. And it's not quoted about how good humans are, how good a king is who's physical and in person and just has pulled themselves up by their bootstraps to rise to the occasion to be able to wield the power of God. All through the New Testament, 
this passage is quoted about somebody else. Not David, not an earthly king, but God himself as he walks into humanity putting flesh and bones on. God himself as he decides to live among people in humble means, expressing his own goodness, living up to what is possible as a human being, to live whole and complete and without sin. You see, all the New Testament writers who write about this, Jesus himself is quoted with this passage. God himself, as Jesus is baptized, is quoted with this passage. Paul, a predominant writer of the New Testament. The author of Hebrews, John, the author of Revelation, all quote this in relationship to Jesus showing up on earth, the real anointed one, who God really says, this is my son. This is the one who wields all my power. This is the one I've installed in Zion. This is the one that I can trust to do this perfectly. And that makes a difference. It makes a huge difference in how we understand this psalm. I think a lot of us as Christians, we really like the psalms that talk about our enemies. Because we prefer us and them kind of ideas. We the privileged ones, and they the unprivileged ones. We the powerful ones, them the powerless ones. We the good ones, them the bad ones. We the righteous ones, them the evil ones. Whatever your dichotomy is, we love that. We love painting ourselves in the light and other people in the dark. And this psalm could, on, on its service level, we could do that. We could say, yeah, I am on that team. I am on God's team. He laughs at people who are opposed to him. I'm not one of those. And the problem is, the reality is, we are one of those. Every last one of us on earth. We have been opposed to God at some point. We still deal with our own opposition to God now. See, none of us has the privilege to stand in the, in the room where the guy's being inaugurated who's standing up for us on our behalf and say, I am completely, 100% with God in the way this passage would describe it. If that were true, you would be Jesus. And I'll be real honest with you today, you're not. The truth of the matter is, it's not us and them, it's us and him. We want to divide. The reality is, as humans, we are the ones who are opposed to God. We are the ones this passage is written about, not in the positive light, in the negative light. We are the ones who conspire against God at different times of our life to get our way to do our thing, to get what we want out of our own existence. We're the ones that even plot to try to use our own Christianity, our faith, our religion to get what we want out of life. We're really good at being opposed to God. And what this passage alludes to and what it shows is the vacuum, the need for God to show up on our behalf in our dust, walk among us, get close to us, have proximity to us so we would have someone to run to. So we could find safety and security that is real and complete and full in light of the fact that we're broken, messy, and sinful, and at times outright opposed and rebellious to God. There is no us and them. It's never been that way. Humanity's lines are not drawn that way. 
It is us and Him. And He has chosen to take off His heavenly robes and clothe Himself in humanity and walk among us. He has chosen to do what this passage is intended to create in us. The want and the need and the desire for a king on earth to show up, to be a part of our life in a way that we desperately need, to show us how we've been opposed to God and do something other than annihilate us for it. See, what's striking about God showing up on earth, what blows my mind is he doesn't just obliterate us. He does the exact opposite. He's patient and he's gentle. At times he's pushy. He goes a distance with us. He extends grace and love and compassion and forgiveness and hope when none of those things were deserved on our behalf. So I think about a passage like this and my first knee-jerk reaction is to align myself on the side of and the king himself didn't even do that. Came into our world powerless. By humble means, into a humble family. He resisted the temptation to overthrow the Roman government. He suffered and died at the hands of people who accused him of things he didn't do. Think about, in, in view of what Christ is in light of this, my only position to take is that I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as good as I think I am. But I am every bit as needy as I think I am. So I have two takeaways for this. One is in our view of who God is. And th this one is one that I think for, for me has been, has been a tough one over the years. My first takeaway is this, is that God himself he doesn't need our permission to think or act or feel in reaction to our thoughts, our actions, and our feelings. Here's what I mean by that. My first blush in this, I get bent out of shape at God getting angry and laughing at us when we're opposed to him. The reality is, a lot of what I've chosen to do with life, it makes sense that he's upset about it. And it makes sense that he's laughing about it. I honestly, like, the only comparison I have is being a parent, and I'm fairly new at that. And if you told me any day of the week it was wrong for me to react to my kids' decisions about what they're going to do in life, I would tell you you're full of it. I, I have the ability to react, and I, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege. It's, a, it's part of being, being, is I get to react to what they choose to do, how they act, what they think. How much more so when it comes to God? How can we get angry with him when he is upset with us that we've chosen to rebel against him? The fact is, he doesn't need your permission to be upset with you or, or to laugh at times at the decisions we make. Positionally, he just doesn't need your, your, your permission to do that. Furthermore, this one, I, I, I worry this way and kind of regret it right now, but I'm going to put it up on the screen anyway. You need to check yourself. And all I can think of is Donna from uh, Parks and Rec. Yeah, you get it, right? 
We need to check yourself. Like, that's what this passage is saying. Who are you? You are not the king. You are not God. You are not even as strong as you think you are as a human. Check who you are. You're not in as much control as you think. You want to be in control, and you're not. So here's the takeaway for me as I think on this. There are three action verbs in this text, and I'll I'll put it on you to go back and read it and find them here, but they are this. Be wise, be warned, and serve God. That's what the psalmist says to the people who are opposed to God. Be wise, be warned, and serve God. What I love about this passage, what I love this week as it's been doing its work on me, is the fact that this isn't a totalizing end of the day, all you'll ever be is someone who's opposed to God kind of passage. This is a kind of passage filled with hope when it's directed and pointed at the incarnation of Jesus on earth. That yes, even here, there are people opposed to Israel, but the psalmist is saying you can choose something different. You kings of the earth be wise, be warned, and choose to serve God. The same is true for us, you guys. That in light of the fact that you aren't as strong as you think you are, and the king who has arrived on earth has chosen to give you love and hope and a direction, be wise, be warned, and serve God. Let's pray. God, today, as we meditate on your word, as we try to take it in and get it into us, God, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do in us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you continue to shape and convict and forgive and exhibit hope in just the right moments and just the right amounts as we need it. God, our lives are complicated. Our stories are still being written right now. And we understand how, how much we need you. God, help, help us admit that to ourselves, and then to you and then the people around us who are walking the same journey with us. We're grateful for the fact that you've shown up, that you arrived on earth, and that you have given us all kinds of access to the wholeness that you want to give away. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name.